0: Welcome to the New Welcome Books to New Network. In Japanese Studies. I'm your host, Alexandra Hambleton, an assistant professor at Tsuda University in Tokyo. Today we're joined by Thomas Vodanet to discuss his book, Regimes of Desire, Young Gay Men, Media, and Masculinity in Tokyo. It was published in 2021 by University of Michigan Press. Dr. Vodanet is a senior lecturer in Japanese and international studies in the Department of Media, Communications, Creative Arts, Languages, and Literatures at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. He's a cultural anthropologist and his work explores consumption of popular culture among queer communities in Japan, mainland China, Thailand and the Philippines. Thanks for joining us today, Tom.
1: Thank you for having me, Alex. It's a real pleasure.
0: So we're here to talk about your book, Regimes of Desire, which is a book that looks at Shinjuku Nichome, a nightlife district in central Tokyo filled with bars and clubs that targets the city's gay gay male community. Now, Nichoe is often thought about as a safe space where same-sex attracted men and women from across Japan's largest city can gather to find support in a relentlessly heteronormative society. But as your book reveals, the neighborhood may not be as welcoming as previously depicted in prior literature. So Tom, can you tell us first a little bit about your career and then how you got into this project? please?
1: Well, it's it's um my career. When I think about my career, I, I, look... I've always been really interested in, in the role of media and shaping knowledge about gender and sexuality. And I think that that's really what has mobilised my my work to date. And And this really actually stems from a very personal journey of my own, where when I was like a young... Queer man coming to terms with my own sexuality. I remember this moment very vividly in my life, where I went to a local library. I was fourteen years old, and I discovered this genre of Japanese comics, manga, um, that was known is known as boys' love. It's it's about kind of these really kind of beautiful male youths falling in love. And it was really, really very powerful for me as, as a kind of moment of af- affirmation for my sexuality. So as I, I went through my kind of university education, majoring in Japanese studies, traveling to Japan, studying in Japan, I've always been really curious about, you know, what role does media like Boys Love or other forms of media play in, in, in shaping knowledge about gender and sexuality? And, and most importantly, I was becoming increasingly interested through my studies on Japan's gay male community and this space Shinjuku ni Chome, which I admittedly discovered as a young, you know, twenty-year-old on on holiday to Japan and you know having fun in clubs. But you know, I, I turned that that passion as I entered graduate school, and then subsequently as I, I took up my position here at Macquarie University in, into a, a you know an academic career and, and a, a central interest in in the the problematics of this particular space and as you rightly highlight you know a lot of the previous literature on this district shinjuku ni chome has focused on the role that this district as a queer nightlife or quote-unquote gayborhood um, plays in providing support and a safe space for same-sex attracted men in japan and i don't want to discredit that that interpretation i mean this is it is broadly speaking within a heteronormative society. True, Shinjuku trauma is a safe space, not just for gay men, but also various members of the broader sexual minority community in Japan. Um, but as I engage with the space, as I began thinking about questions of acceptance, questions of desire, which of course is highlighted in the title of the book, what it means to desire, and how does participation in this space and engaging with the media that circulates within it shape desire and knowledge about desirability? I, I increasingly realized that yes, uh, within the broader landscape of, of Japan or Tokyo as a heteronormative space that privileges the default kind of heterosexuality of social subjects, within Nichome itself, there's a, a, a kind of complicated politics of desiring, in which yes, queer desire—if that is you know desire or love between two men or two women or what have you—is um, broadly supported. But the ways in which that desire flows, or the way it's articulated, or what is and is not considered desirable from a lifestyle perspective or from an aesthetic perspective is actually strongly contoured by various ideologies, tied to the very the incredibly neoliberal. Um, system of media that circulates in in the space. So this this is what led me kind of away from being, um, you know, broadly reparative about the space and, and thinking a little bit more critically about how it can be problematic for a space of emancipation to not be fully emancipatory. And that, that's part of a broader trend in queer studies that, that's kind of turned towards the politics of emotion and the politics of affect. And, and I, I problem I kind of historicize my analysis of Nichome within that broader global trend towards neoliberal queer um, production.
2: And so you do this in a really interesting way. Um, you take this idea and the central thesis of the book is essentially that consumption of gay media influences how young gay men um, understand their desires as you explained and then you consider this ideological role and the heteronormativity and how that plays in de- uh, how these two things interact in developing this understanding so can you elaborate a little bit more on the heteronormativity and the way that it appears in Nichome as a space
1: so I think to, to kind of provide the background we, we need to kind of recognise uh, the The strongly heteropatriarchal culture and society of Japan, in which notions of maturation, notions of um, so called Productive, both reproductive but also economically productive um, participation in society is consistently framed both structurally but also um, personally through highly um, kind of heteronormative frameworks. So to be a kind of useful citizen or what is often known as a shakaijin someone who is a full member of society is to be you know married to have produced children and and to be involved in a romantic well not maybe not even necessarily romantic but let's say a a supportive relationship between a man and a woman. So within this broader heteronormativity within Japan, various ideologies of masculinity and femininity have emerged. And in the Japanese context, we see this um, perfectly encapsulated in a figure known as the salary man, Sarariman in Japanese, um, who is the white collar worker, also often referred to as the corporate warrior or Kigyo-senshi, who embodies this kind of masculine kind of strength and hardness not we're not talking necessarily in aesthetic terms here but we're talking about as i said productivity and and how masculinity in japan is primarily framed through these narratives of hard work and its role in in producing a a kind of strong central figure that drives japanese society so when i talk about heteronormativity within the context of Japan's gay media, what I'm talking about is how the ideologies of desire or what I term the regimes of desire, a a kind of hierarchical system that promotes some desires as natural and and obvious and correct and others as dangerous or unnatural, um, basically pushes forward and in fact resuscitates highly restrictive patriarchal understandings of hard masculinity and throughout the book i actually contrast this with a lot of the research that's previously been done as well as the the um kind of conversations i had with japanese gay men and we'll probably talk about the ethnography a little bit later um with this trend that we see in young women's popular culture that has actually kind of celebrated new forms of masculinity that are quote unquote softer than hegemonic forms. And and one of the, the central theses of the book is that within Japan's gay culture, We've actually seen a conservative backlash against these sorts of um, kind of more innovative or perhaps we could even say feminist forms of masculinity from from a young women's perspective. And you know it was actually quite interesting because, as I detail in the book, the, the gay men that I was interviewing and the media that I was analyzing was actually very, very explicit in its, its kind of discussion of like, you know, we need to save true masculinity. And, and there's this kind of nostalgic longing for, you know, when men were real men. And, it, and it's this kind of broader history of, of Japanese gay culture and activism producing itself in reaction against the tendency within Japanese society to position gay men as, quote unquote, women trapped in male bodies, which is another extension of that heteronormativity that I was talking about. The idea that uh, Japanese conceptualizations of of same-sex attracted men in particular has always been um, what some colleagues, perhaps problematically, refer to as a transgendered conceptualization. This idea that that, um, gay men are somehow gender inverts, or as one of my informants noted that they are failed men um, so I, I historicize a lot of these regimes of desire as part of an attempt, a misguided attempt, I would say, to, to combat the discrimination faced by Japanese gay men through resuscitating heteronormative gender structures. So that's really why I'm, I'm quite concerned about the, the gay media landscape and Shinjuku Nichome as, as a space that, that actually kind of re-empowers what I would call problematic notions of gender and sexuality at the same time as trying to produce an environment that is accepting for queerness, because if you do not subscribe to mainstream gender norms, as many of my informants didn't, then the regimes of desire that structure knowledge about what it means to be gay and how to live your life as a gay man in in Japan, and particularly in Nichome, is actually setting you up for failure.
2: It's always really interesting to see that within these ideologies, they seem to swing from crisis to crisis. And so this backlash against this crisis of masculinity is such a fascinating thing to look at from the perspective of Nietzsche. So you do this in the book through looking at six particular case studies. Um, and you introduce Nichome as a space to us, and you consider the socio-semiotic system known as typing, as it's called, that occurs there. Can you tell us a little bit more about this typing that happens in Nichome?
1: Okay, so so I think that I'll, I'll just kind of set up um, my ethnography in Nichome to answer this question. So, so um, you know, I was interested in studying the politics of desire. And this is something that is not directly observable, right? So I, I was initially trained as a linguist and then I, I shifted to cultural anthropology um, through through my graduate school training. And and this is because I increasingly came to recognize that in order to understand the highly subjective process of desiring and, and sexual desire more broadly, I needed to kind of examine this within a, a kind of situated context and through lived experience. And, you know, my my reading of the previous literature, both in Japanese language and English language, and my own prior experiences traveling to Tokyo, you know, really led me to Shinjukini Chome. This this it's it's a relatively small district, but it, it is often argued by scholars to have the highest concentration of gay clubs out of any space in the world there's approximately at least 400 small little clubs in this this district that is no larger than a city block and there's also other forms of businesses such as um gay shops gay shopper that sell mostly pornography but other forms of media as well um, a lot of um sex on premises venues and and um spaces where sex workers can be hired which are known in shinjuku ni chome as host clubs um though i would flag that host clubs in other districts of um you know, Tokyo, don't necessarily involve sex work, per se. Um, And yeah, so it it seemed to me like the perfect space to come and understand and research desire, particularly because it's a space where desire is sold. And one of the central arguments of the book, and this relates to this idea of typing, is that these hierarchies of knowledge or these regimes of desire are primarily um, tied to consumption. So consumption of media, but also participation within, you know, a gay bar and nightlife culture in which um, sexual and romantic and other forms of interaction has become commoditized. And so this is a space in which desire, as well as a kind of happy gay life or a successful gay life is being sold. And the media plays a a significant role in, in shaping this. So... This is where typing comes in. So, typing is a a system of classifying bars. Initially, this is how it initially emerged, but as the book explains, it's it's much more complicated than this. Um, It's a system in which bars are typed by the clientele to which they cater. So, basically, each bar has its type and in so doing, the the kind of owner of the bar, usually referred to as a mama-san, uh, a, a bar mother, um, is thus kind of selecting a particular clientele that they can, I mean, we could say exploit economically if we want to be a little bit kind of paranoid, I guess, in, in that kind of Eve Sedgwick paranoid reading. Um, so... This is what typing is. It, but, but when we say it's a socio-semiotic system, the reason I bring this up and why I think typing in, in kind of Nichoma is slightly distinct to this phenomenon in, for example, gay nightlife districts in, in like Sydney, where I'm from, or perhaps you know thinking about Castro or other major Western nightlife districts, is that it's also an, a coded way of kind of reflecting the the values of what is considered desirable in, in japan's gay culture and they do so through semiotic cues such as you know the typical ones of body language and sorry but body shape is what I meant to say physicality muscularity um, clothing uh, comportment but also how one speaks what music one listens to I think one of the things that I found most interesting was that there was also some linguistic aspects to this. Um, I write briefly in the book, but also explore in other scholarship, how there's a tension between Japanese as an index of traditionality and English as, a, as an index of cosmopolitanism. But basically typing is this, this broad way in which not just identity, but desire itself is classified. So, um, This is something I only learned through participating within the space and interviewing the gay men that I met in Shinjuku Nichome. So I I roughly interviewed um, 50 gay men on and off over a period of several years. But the book actually specifically focuses on whilst these 50 gay men's voices and, and their my ethnography basically. Uh, central to setting up the ideas because desire is such a personal process and I wanted to very specifically focus on how it impacts individual understandings of gender and sexuality I actually eventually narrowed into four case studies so so four particular individuals and their relationships with six particular forms of media so advertising and Shinjuku ni chome um, a broad overview of their kind of patterns of media consumption, um, gay pornography, gay magazines, manga and dating sites, both uh, location-based dating apps and um, kind of more traditional forum-based dating sites. So through exploring these personal um, kind of connections to media and seeing how typing is present in all of these forms of media and function in different ways and are conceptualized in different ways by the people who engage with them. It led me to kind of really understand how desire is very, very strongly contoured by typing in each home, to the point where men that I interviewed basically said, I can't talk about my desires or my sexuality without using typing to make sense of it. And and basically, that, that made me realize just how concerning it is when you've got this commodified form of... of identity expression circulating and and how that actually limits the agency of people to express themselves so that that's really one of the central theses once again of the book and as i already flagged it's through typing and the valorization of one particular type known in japanese as the ikanimo which we can loosely translate as obviously gay type but i'll unpack that a little bit later um basically the regimes of desire and typing functions to put that type On the top of the pyramid and that type aligns with all of the stereotypes of heteronormative heart masculinity that are kind of emerging from Japan's heteronormative society.
2: So Nichiome as a space then it gives gay men the opportunity to explore their desires, explore their identities, but in the end it really kind of constricts what they can actually access and what they see as their identity in itself yeah I, I like to think
1: of it as funneling so you know you go into this space um, and it it funnels you to view the world in particular ways I mean we we can talk about this as a process of interpolation for instance where um, you know and I, I talk about this in my chapter specifically on dating sites drawing upon that that famous uh, famous theory from Louis Althusser about how, you know, engagement with media and and one's participation within the the kind of dating culture um, basically interpolates you into a type. Because not only are you expressing who, what your type is, you're also having people looking at you and, and kind of reading you as a type. Um, and that, that process can be quite confronting and, and destabilizing in many ways. But it's also one of these motions where you realize your desirability or you realize your relationship to gender through the interpolation of other people. So that, that's one of the arguments that I make. And, and I think that, yeah, that's why I like to think of it as a funnel or, or this kind of form of, of ideological control, because people are being led to think in particular ways through their media engagement and through their participation in Jinjuku mm-hmm. chome. And, you know, as, as I've been quite upfront about, this is a space in which desire is being commercialized and gay experience is being commercialized and commoditized. So, you know, the media, the, the bars, yes, they provide an important safe space and, and so forth. And I never, ever, ever want to detract from that, but they also are about making money and what's happening here is that the the media is is producing certain desires as normative in order to create a captive market that can then be kind of pushed to consume in particular ways and that kind of market is being produced in a way that resuscitates heteronormativity and the book really is about exploring the, the potential harms that this can do to those people who who cannot align with these these identities or choose not to align with it um, I, I talk about it throughout the book as an instance of cruel optimism once again drawing upon the very um, influential work of the late Lauren Boulogne, who talks about how systems of neoliberalism basically produce fantasies of kind of this kind of utopic futurism that actually, inhibits the the flourishing of people. It's where the object of one's desires causes one's self to harm. And throughout the book I, I talk about how the valorization of this heteronormative hard masculinity as embodied within the figure of this Ikanimoke, the the character that is supposed to, or the type that's supposed to look like a gay man to other gay men. Um, because you know they're, they're super buff and they, they, some of the things are really silly you know they wear a cap in a particular way they have a short beard they have short hair. Um, this is what's desirable at least when I was there in 2013 to 2015. Um, but what's happening is basically the gay media landscape sells this fantasy it says if you align with this particular notion of desirability and the lifestyle attached to it, which is of course a lifestyle of hedonistic consumption and participation in Nichome's nightlife, then you will have the emancipation that you are looking for but if you choose not to if you deviate from that in some way then you're somehow not ever going to have what what the gay magazine buddy called a happy gay life um and that's really concerning to me because as an instance of queer optimism sorry cruel optimism it's, it's selling a fantasy that for many gay men they'll never be able to achieve Or in other ways, in my most critical in the book, I argue that it creates a cycle of endless consumption in which the only way to live a successful gay life is to subscribe to heteronormative norms of masculinity as expressed through a very, very, very conspicuous culture of consumption that is, of course, tied to the gay media and the spaces in Nichome that are producing the desires for this hyper-masculine, hard masculinity. And as I said, it's, it's part of a, a, a backlash, a, a backlash against alternative forms of masculinity in, in mainstream culture. Um, and, and it's just, as I said, like, I've seen it do real harm. I don't, I don't want to, like, kind of sell all of what the book's about, but, you know, some of my key informants had had real motions of harm, self-esteem, um, a nervous breakdown in the case of one of them. And, and like, I think Shinjuku Nichome as a space needs to be viewed with a little bit of scepticism because there's a lot of utopianism in the writing of activists and previous scholarship. But yet, when I spent more and more time there, I became aware of these more concerning elements, this this cruel optimism and the way that desire functions to discipline and punish, to quote, you know, Foucault, as much as it is about providing a space of support.
2: So I think this is a really good time now to get into a discussion of these informants that you speak of. So you interviewed 50 men, but you kind of break the book down into sort of four key informants. So you have Junho, Yoichi, Haruma, and Shotaro, and you introduce them to us in chapter two of the book. Can you tell us a little bit about these men and why they were so central to your study?
1: I, I think um, it would take too much time for me to really share their life stories here. And I also want people to go out and grab the books um, because, you know, the, the the book really is about recounting their stories. So I, I, I took what's called a psychobiographical approach. I was, I was really kind of key. I worked with these men over many years. And I was really key in looking at how key moments of transition kind of, were provided insights into their understanding of of desire and and kind of exploring how that relates to their media consumption in particular so why did i focus on these four particular men it was it's not just simply a question of rapport though of course i would i would note that with with three of them in particular i developed very significant rapport so i had I had a very strong relationship with jun ha with Haruma and Shotaro, and I should flag, of course, these are all pseudonyms, whereas my relationship with Yoichi was a little bit less developed. And in fact, I lost contact with Yoichi at the end of my initial field work. So the other three I'm still in contact with, um, but Yoichi I haven't heard from since the end of 2013. Um, And I I talk about why that's the case in the book, Um, but really why... I focused on these four men is because when I was writing my dissertation initially and then revising mm-hmm. it into this book manuscript, it was really my conversations with them. And I, I had many conversations with them over the years that, that uh, awoke me to these particular kind of problematics that I've been sharing with you. So they're, they're key informants, not just because they're, they're life stories and their their kind of media consumption patterns are somehow quote-unquote representative because throughout the book i I do kind of indicate that i'm not necessarily looking for generalizability per se though i would flag that a lot of what they did was representative just you know through happenstance um particularly in the, the types of media they consumed and the frequency with which they consumed it um but it was it was really because their personal struggles with with navigating these regimes of desire um became central to my own thinking. And, you know, I opened the book with a vignette that occurred very early in my ethnography where I visited a one of these gay shoppers with, with Shotaro, one of the key interlocutors. And we were flipping through a gay magazine and admiring um, a, a gay porn star named Komasaki, Masaki, who at the time was incredibly popular. And it was, it was seeing Shotaro's very ambivalent reactions to this you know, quote unquote, Ikanimoke, like this highly muscular, straight acting, masculine um, porn star who is a great image to combat the, the tendency within Japanese mainstream media to position gay men as like women trapped in male bodies um, or cross-dressing clowns, if you will. Um, but at the same time, he reinforced everything that Shotaro was not, because Shotaro was not an kind Ikan, kei He was slim. He was more aligned with the kind of cuter aesthetics um, mm-hmm. that was popular in women's media. And yet he, he, while celebrating the role of gay media in kind of indicating that, you know, gay desire is normal, the particular ways in which desire was being shown or being directed in that media then led him to feel uncomfortable about his own kind of comportment and whether he is in fact desirable within the context of the gay community. So, you know, my conversation with Shotaro early in my fieldwork really opened my mind to these questions because I went across as a naive graduate student with this idea, I'm going to write about how, you know, queer media in Japan is emancipatory and blah, 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 basically replicating all of the work that had previously been done. Um, But by being there, I realized, oh no, something more complex is happening here. So, yeah, so th- this is why these voices became central. And there, there are important moments with each of these four participants that helped me sh- shape these knowledge. You know, for instance, a lot of what I learned about the Ikanimoke, I learned from Yoichi, who was an Ikanimoke. Like, he was this buff, very kind of stereotypically attractive guy um, who lived the lifestyle. But even he, towards the end of my, my fieldwork, became disillusioned with it. And I actually lost contact with him because he decided to cut ties with a, a kind of culture and community that he was increasingly viewing as, as toxic. So, you know, this this is, yeah, interesting. And then there's Haruma, who had a really terrible boyfriend who was abusive and, and all sorts of things, and he hadn't had a nervous breakdown. It, it, as I said, I saw a lot of pain um, in Shinjuku, Chome, um, as well as a lot of, you know, joie de vivre and joyousness and so forth. And I, as I said, I, it, it's a space of both. But I think that the literature has tended to focus on the joy, without taking into account the pain. And and I wanted to focus on the pain because for the four men that I interviewed, as as key interlocutors, pain was and and, and this cruel optimism that was the central kind of experience effectively for them.
2: So throughout the book, you reflect on this idea of beautiful boys, otokurashisa, hard masculinity, and you look at how this appears in different types of media that is marketed to gay men. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept and the kinds of media that it appears in? So
1: I, I was interested in kind of teasing apart this question of hard masculinity, not just because, you know, as I flag in one of the chapters, I think chapter three, Um, it was a, a term that just constantly emerged in my interviews, not just with my key interlocutors, but also with the other people that I was meeting in bars and and, and so forth, that, you know, desirable masculinity is somehow hard. And that otokorashisa, this term which often gets translated as masculinity, but, but actually if we're going to be a little bit more literal, it means like the inherent nature of men, um, is is conceptualized as i've already flagged within Japan's heteronormative society as active as productive um, and, and this is then transposed into broader discussions uh, around, um, you know, hard male bodies as indicative of, of kind of activity and productivity. So the, there were some beautiful discussions, for instance, with, with um, people about how like gym trading and the, produce, the production of, of um, kind of these hard masculine bodies, which are known in Japanese gay slang as gatai um you know six pack abs washboard um pecs huge massive arms etc um is indicative of discipline and and because there you need to have the aesthetic like the discipline to to aesthetically transform yourself into something desirable and that's very manly um and you know that that was then kind of fetishistically linked to a notion of straight actingness so what is known as non isa um the the nature of straight men with non-care being a gay slang term for straight men. So there's all these, and I I won't go into all of the case studies, because we don't have enough time. But I will share one media form that I think is where this is most specifically obvious. And also, it was the media that was most commonly consumed by gay men in Japan. And I think no one will be surprised to learn that this was porn videos. So within Japanese gay porn, we're talking about a, a um, a medium in which the, the performers appearing within the films, the vast majority of whom, have these ikanimo hard masculine aesthetics. And that's part of a broader transnational trend, I would add, within gay pornography more broadly. Um, and Japan's gay pornography industry is you know, responding to other porn industries in, in its production of this. You know, but, but basically, like, the models are pro- kind of sold to consumers as straight men. So it's about reinforcing a fetishization of straight men. So this leads to a, a, a real conundrum that was a conundrum for me as an ethnographer, but also a conundrum for my informants, including my key informants, Haruma and Shotoro in particular, um, that like you're supposed to be an obviously gay man, ikani Moke, obviously gay man, who conforms to a particular aesthetic, but you're supposed to also be straight acting so the, the kind of desirability of the hypermasculine hard masculinity throughout Japanese gay media, whether that be porn videos, gay magazines, even dating sites, the advert advertising in Ichome or, or manga comics, is all about tying together the ikanimoke as an obviously gay type that is desirable because of its kind of hard masculinity with the fact that this hard masculinity is inherently indexing straight men. And this is, as I said, the paradox, the conundrum, and why I argue throughout the book that, that the regimes of desire as, as a kind of um, neoliberal kind of phenomenon in Japan and in Nichomu in particular, is resuscitating hegemonic masculinity and resuscitating heteronormative masculinity because it ties together desirability with a fetishization of straightness. Now, in many ways within queer studies, this isn't necessarily a novel argument because we see this all over the world. It's part of global gay culture. But the fact of the matter is that the literature on um, kind of queer culture in Japan has tended to not necessarily investigate this particular issue. Um, except for a few kind of um, articles that I can think of off the top of my head, so so it was really central and important to me that this this was like the lived experience that people were nav- navigating this paradox, and it's the paradox that produces the cruel optimism because it's fundamentally kind of about a, a contradiction, like that, that that is quite bizarre if you sit down and think about it critically. So yeah, this this. Also, I think is important because, as I've already flagged to you, that within contemporary Japan, other media forms produced for other markets, most notably young heterosexual women, has moved away from and challenges this form of um, kind of hegemonic masculinity. And so we have this really quite bizarre phenomenon in which a community that is particularly precarious within contemporary Japan is retreating into the past, if you will, um, and kind of very conservative notions of masculinity at the same time as other communities are trying to be progressing beyond them. So I I wanted to really frame this um, importantly, because I think that the, the case study of shinjiguni trauma is of interest to those who want to study masculinity or gender in Japan more broadly. So it's not just a question of like this isn't just useful for people interested in gay men, but it also provides us a new insight into um, the kind of ongoing hegemony of hard masculinity in contemporary Japan, because I, I'm increasingly dissatisfied with, partly due to my ethnography, partly due to the interviews that I've been doing, with arguments that we see sometimes emerging in, in literature and Japanese studies, which are suggesting that this bishonen, shounen, beautiful male youth, soft masculinity is somehow a new hegemonic form, because if we look at Shinjuku ni chome, it's not hegemonic, and it's in fact critiqued um, and this isn't the only space where that happens. Um, and in fact, I'm talking to a, a colleague yourself, Alex, who has also written about this quite extensively. Um, so I think that there's a new, a new tendency within critical studies of gender in Japan to be skeptical of, of the, the kind of broadly optimistic interpretations of soft masculinity that were emerging in scholarship in the 2000s. So the book is partly a response to that as well. So, yeah, I think that I really want to emphasize that because it was something that when I was kind of transforming my PhD dissertation into a book, that was something that I was consistently thinking about. And it's why I decided to shift my focus to questions of desire and thinking about desire as hierarchicized, because these desires aren't just about gay desire, but they're they're also more broad.
2: So you bring all of these threads together in the conclusion um, of the book and you think about this idea of cruel optimism. And from the way that you've been speaking today, it seems like there is very little hope for the LGBT community in Japan right now. Um, But at the same time, there has been a huge boom, this this so-called LGBT boom, particularly in the lead up to the 20 or what ended up being the 2021 Olympics in Tokyo. Um, The boom is now, according to some, probably over. Or Mm. at the very least...
1: I'd agree with that 100%. on the decline
2: yeah. um so what developments do you then see coming for the lgbt community in japan is there any way we can actually have some hope
1: yeah so so you know as as I've, it is pretty clear like the book is is very much leaning into um the the paranoid reading to to you know once again quote steve uh eve sedgwick but I wanted to be reparative in the end because I wanted to talk about hope. And that's partly because, once again, my key interlocutors, when I reconnected with them in a debriefing period after I submitted my PhD dissertation and as I was preparing this book manuscript, I wanted to hear what how things had changed. And this occurred in 2017. Um, and it was smack bang in the middle of this media moment known as the LGBT boom, where um, after the United States Supreme Court... Um, Introduced kind of same sex marriage across the whole of the states. We saw this kind of flourish of media interest in LGBTQ issues in the Japanese media, uh, mainstream media, I mean, and, and a growing understanding of and discussion about LGBT rights, politics, and activism. Um, and, and it's part of a broader historical cycle of booms around queer issues that we see in post-war Japanese media. So there's a moment... And arguably, in...
2: arguably around almost every social issue in Japan.
1: <laughs> exactly. Japan is a, yeah, boom and bust, let's say. Um, so so some some colleagues are now beginning, in Japan, are beginning to historicise the LGBT boom as 2015 to 2018, 2019. Um, some will extend it up to the Olympics in 2021. But actually... Yeah, I, I'm more willing to think that it kind of died down in 2018, 2019, personally. But anyway, so so the reason I started talking about hope is that when I reconnected with my interlocutors, they were basically saying that, you know, the LGBT boom is providing a counter narrative to to these kind of more kind of conservative voices within Japanese gay culture. And in fact, Japanese gay culture in response to mainstream media, like I, I haven't mentioned this in this discussion, but I'm, I'm quite explicit in the book that a lot of the gay media that exists in, in Japan is not overtly political um, and is very divorced from questions of activist activism, except the LGBT boom kind of led people to to begin to insist on this and and also to kind of focus on solidarities between the various kind of sexual minority communities in Japan, um, which have had a fraught relationship with each other historically for various reasons. Um, So the the end of the book was about kind of thinking about hope as a radical queer intervention that can frustrate the regimes of desire and, and how hoping towards a better future as engendered through activism and has engendered through this new media kind of boom, which was a buzzword and has been quite rightly criticized by other scholars as as being kind of simplistic. But that I think was what I was trying to do. Hope as a radical queer corrective against like a a neoliberalized desire. Problem is, then COVID hits. so everything that I was, that I and my interlocutors was hoping for, really I believe was highly frustrated by the, the ongoing pandemic and continued to be frustrated. So um, you know I, I don't want to necessarily theorize on the spot here in our discussion, but whilst I, I still believe that hope as a radical queer kind of intervention can kind of push back against some of these regimes of desire. It, it hasn't happened as fast as as I or others would have hoped. And this is including, you know, activists that I, I chat with um, still across social media. So you still look at Japanese gay gay media, and, and I haven't been able to visit Shinjuku Nichome since 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Um, but when I was there in early 2020, nothing had changed. It was still, Ikari Moke, this Japanese gay pornography has in fact perhaps become even more Focused on on these kind of hypermasculine bodies and, and and like even though the gay magazines I studied folded, the the discourses of a happy gay life as as linked to this kind of ikani moke ideal is still being replicated in other spaces. You know, online spaces, for instance. Um, the only place where I'm beginning to see any kind of uh, kind of pushback against this is ironically. Boys Love Media, which is produced for and by heterosexual women, but has a large gay, a growing gay kind of consumer base. And it's partly, and I talk about this briefly in the book, um, you know, it's partly those who want to push back against this, this kind of valorization of hard masculinity. And because young heterosexual women's media is providing that space, gay men are turning to young heterosexual women's media rather than gay media in order to kind of produce these new hopes and these focuses on romance and so forth. So so that is actually something that I'm going to be, I'm I'm moving forward with in in future work, um, which will potentially be looking at how young women's consumer culture um, across East Asia through the lens of idol fandom um, is a kind of space of queer, emancipation, um, as well as a feminist space. So that that's kind of how I'm now beginning to think about hopefulness in my my future scholarship and, and building on some of the arguments I've presented here.
2: I'm not sure whether we actually can have hope for the future now after this discussion. <laughs> uh, yes. Look I, as, as I
1: said, like I'm very well aware that this book is quite as I say, paranoid. Like it, it, it's quite it, it's a bit of a downer. So in in response to that in my own kind of scholarly practice, I I have been focusing more on the reparative in in my subsequent work and and thinking more, more, actually embracing this idea of hope. And and I've written a lot about how um, Japanese queer popular culture, which I critique within the context of Japan, how when it transnationalizes or becomes adapted to new international contexts, actually produces um, the, the kind of hopeful emancipation that unfortunately is being kind of frustrated by the regimes of desire in Japan, because outside of Japan, they're set free from their, their kind of tr- kind of cultural context and are allowed to be kind of allowed is the wrong word, but they, they're kind of set free to function in new and exciting ways. So that's, that's why my, my focus has shifted to the transnational reception of a lot of this media now. Um, And that's been quite fulfilling to me because I'm seeing the hopes that are being frustrated by the regimes of desire in Japan being actuated outside in other contexts. So it it means that that this Japanese gay media, perhaps it isn't the media itself that's the problem, but the the cultural context and and the industry context more specifically in which they circulate. Because, of course, the vast majority of international consumers of this stuff aren't consuming it, um, let's say, (laughs) legally.
2: So it's a really fascinating direction, direction to take the project after being so frustrated and depressed by what you found in Nitoome. Um, just to finish up, you've talked about how you're looking at young women, Japanese popular culture overseas. Can you tell us just a little bit more specifically about the current projects you're working on and the direction they'll take?
1: So I am um, currently actually being interviewed from Bangkok, um, where I am doing some field work. Uh, related to my next book project. So I'm I'm currently finalizing the revisions of my next manuscript um, for a book that explores the, the role of Japanese queer popular culture in producing a new form of media here in Thailand that is called Boys Love Drama, so Boys Love Series, um, and how it's transformed and created this new fantastic genre of queer media in the context of Thailand. So that that project is is wrapping up, but I'll, I'll probably be working on the Thai context for many years to come, just because I've become so embedded within it. The other project that I'm looking at um, is, is similarly looking at k-pop fandom so fandom for korean popular music as a as, as resource for um lgbtq consumers across the asia pacific to kind of um once again using it as a resource to to make sense of and and kind of advocate for queer sexuality so really um my my current projects are have expanded to as i already said like to be more reparative but also i've become increasingly interested in how asian popular culture provides resources to consumers around the world that other popular culture, in particular Western popular culture, doesn't necessarily provide, and and how that shapes and produces queer culture more broadly. So that's what I'm doing here in Thailand. Um, And once we finish chatting, Alex, I'll be heading off to continue my fieldwork and meet some collaborators here. So that book comes out next year with Bloomsbury um, Academic.
2: We look forward to having you back when that book comes out as well. (laughs) So I should let you get out to your fieldwork. You only have a limited time there, so you need to go and enjoy it. But thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. Thank you for having me. Regimes of Desire, Young Gay Men, Media and Masculinity in Tokyo by Thomas Bodinet is available through University of Michigan Press. And I really recommend grabbing a copy so that you can enjoy the specifics of the case studies that Tom writes about and learn more about how the different media consumed by young gay men impacts their identities. Mm